Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for listening today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, he is an author, and he is also my dad. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, and I'm thoroughly psyched to have a chance to uh, talk with our friend, my friend, Mark Coleman, who's a wonderful meditation teacher and has been my buddy in a lot of cool walks over many, many years. So Mark has studied in a wide variety of Buddhist traditions since the 1980s, and he's a senior meditation teacher at Spirit Rock Meditation Center in Northern California, and he's also the founder of Awake in the Wild, an organization that runs programs focused on immersing people in the natural world, which is going to be a significant focus of our conversation today. And he's also the author of four books, including From Suffering to Peace, The True Promise of Mindfulness, and his newest book, A Field Guide to Nature Meditation, 52 Mindfulness Practices for Joy, Wisdom, and Wonder. So Mark, thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. I am doing very well. I'm particularly delighting in this wild spring weather we're having here in Northern California. We we're having these, as you know, these beautiful storms that come through, dropping all this amazing rain. And then, you know, I've been out in the glory of spring with these green hills and wildflowers and blossoms blooming. And I have to say, it makes me a happy camper. <laughs> well, Mark, just reflecting on this, and we'll probably get into some of your own background a little bit later, maybe, but you're someone who's really been, out, been around the block. You've experienced many different kinds of teachings. You're very trained in the Buddhist tradition. You also have a lot of background in the Diamond Heart approach, which you could maybe talk a bit about for people who hadn't heard of it. What has drawn you so much to practices in nature? Well, it's a great question, and it's something that I've been reflecting on and exploring for probably the last, at least the last 30 years, if not more. So I started meditating 40 years ago. In London, I was a punk rocker. I was, it was in the East End of London. It was very nitty gritty. It was gritty, rundown, urban landscape. And even then, when I started to meditate and I started with mindfulness, I, I very quickly noticed that being more aware, being more mindful, and some, some of the fruits of meditation just both naturally inclined me to nature, which back then in London was a few London plane trees and a few parks that I'd kind of hide out in the weekend. But I also noticed a reciprocity in that when I was outside in my garden, in the parks, out in countryside in England, nature very naturally and easily drew forth quality of presence, ease, relaxation, awareness, contentment. And I don't didn't necessarily have all the language for it then because I was relatively new to meditation. I moved into a retreat center in my early 20s, and that was very much in the country. And so I think that early fusion of spending a few years in a retreat center, meditating, learning Buddhist practice, and seeing, again, how being present in meditation and being outside, that just draws a natural quality of attentiveness mostly because it's beautiful, it's interesting, it's diverse, it's changing, it's dynamic. So that was kind of the start. And then I went to Asia and studied with various teachers. But it really kind of, it, it sort of lit up when I came to North America, when I landed in the US, got a camper van, 
drove across this vast, wild landscape of the Southwest, across the Rockies, the Plains, the East Coast, West Coast. And I just was riveted by the, the wilderness and the wildness and the vastness and the, and the so much beautiful, wild landscapes here. And that, that lit up a whole different dimension of, of just ecstasy, of joy, of rapture, of delight, of awe. You know, I, when I first went to the Grand Canyon, I looked over the edge. It's like, this is why they came up with the word awesome, because it's awe-inspiring. Mm. And, so, and so when I moved here in the 90s, I began camping a lot, hiking a lot, backpacking a lot. And taking my meditation practice outside and doing my own personal retreats outside and really immersing deep in the wilderness and in, in meditation. And it just seemed like the perfect symmetry, companions, that nature draws forth awareness and awareness just, you know, we, we want to be awake and aware because of the, the beauty that, that nature provides. That's so interesting because typically when people think about meditation, it's about going inward. And for you, I'm hearing the theme is that you are really drawn outward into awe, into spaciousness, into wonder, into the wild, which seems like a different kind of movement than the conventional movement that at least stereotypically is centered in mindfulness where people gaze at their navels, you know, from the inside out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what... What do you think it is about you personally that led you into that counterintuitive movement? You know, the subtitle of my, my first book, Awake in the Wild, is, uh, if I can remember it, <laughs> uh, my, Mindfulness in Nature is a Path of Self-Discovery. And what I quickly realized when we go outside is nature is this profound mirror and we enter into this deep relationship. And so even though... So when we go outside, our animal nature wakes up. We are drawn more to the sensory world outside, but of course we're always in relationship. And what quickly became obvious to me was the, the inequalities that arise when we're in relationship with the natural world are very akin to what happens inside in a meditation hall. For example, when I'm outside, I almost immediately feel spacious. I feel more relaxed. I feel connected. I feel at home. I feel wakeful and bright. And so as you, as you can hear, what I'm describing and what became very clear to me was, oh, all the qualities that arise, in my case, through Buddhist meditation, through deep meditation, those qualities arose quite naturally and quite effortlessly, actually. And, and it was very easy to, to rest in, in this quality of, you know, samadhi, of this sort of relaxed, natural presence, where that gathered, collected attention, presence of mind, embodied, connected, that we work hard really on a cushion to develop, I found just came very easily when I'd go outside with contemplative awareness, with mindfulness. 
so it was, yes, I, I'm drawn to nature. I love nature. It's deep within me. But it was just very clear from the beginning that being outdoors is its own temple. You know, mm. at some point as I started doing my own retreats and then leading retreats, some of my more traditional Buddhist friends would, had slight raised eyebrows. Or, What's Mark doing his nature thing, this nature retreat meditation thing in the woods? Like that's not really like the real Dharma practice, you know? And then I began to think, well, wait a minute. The Buddha lived in the forest. <laughs> there was no fancy air-conditioned meditation halls. He lived in the forest. He meditated in the forest, as did most of his contemporaries. He taught mostly in the forest. He died in the forest. And people for thousands of years have gone to the mountains, gone to the caves, gone to the forests, gone to places of beauty to meditate, to contemplate. And so I, I, I quickly realized, oh, I'm actually just doing something that's been done for thousands of years. I just hadn't had the direct cheat, you know, pointing to that. But when I realized that, I said, oh, of course, it, why it feels natural, because it, it's, it's very much part of the tradition and still very much alive in the Thai forest tradition and others. Yeah, before we had this conversation, Mark, I was reflecting on something that you might have some thoughts about or some commentary on, which is ex related to exactly what you were saying about how practicing in nature is now a novel concept for many people because we've been moved indoors. But for most of human history, practicing in nature was just the thing you did. It wasn't like practicing in nature. It was just our natural state was right. being outside and, and in relationship with these things. And a funny extension of this is that there's been kind of a bougification of nature. The mm -hmm. idea of taking people out of urban environments and into natural ones as this sort of bougie thing that relatively well-to-do people do on weekends when they are able to get out of their city urban environments. And so, for starters, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that just broadly. And then second, there are a lot of people, because of socioeconomic issues, who live in purely urban environments, who do not have a lot of access. And I'm wondering what in what you got out of nature is accessible to somebody who comes from one of those environments? Well, I may I start with a latter question first. So I was, I'm, you know, I'm raised working class, grew up in Northern England in, uh, you know, I sort of grew up on a edge of a suburb of a big city called Newcastle, which is, you know, coal mining, industrial shipyards. I, I wasn't particularly in a milieu where nature was, highlighted or I would say I grew up pretty urban in a certain way, even though I, you know, I could bike to the coast a few miles away. And I did choose to bike to the woods, mostly to get away from, from, from my parents and get into trouble. <laughs> Typical training for a future meditation teacher. That's right. Rumbunctious. Just burning up wild. the fields. That's right. Right. Burning Curry. up samsara. <laughs> and yet still, you know, I think I think nature, as you're pointing to, transcends, can transcend any and all of that, because you know we are we are nature. We are from nature. We we have as a species lived very intimately with nature up until the last couple of centuries. And what it's interesting coming from England, and you mentioned the sort of the the sort of the bougie sort of way nature can get spun as an activity. And I think where that has relevance is so for in England, you know, people who were close to the land 
who were peasants, were farmers, were working class. And the association with land was toil, hard, hard physical toil. And then you had the aristocratic class that had the landed gentry that, that mostly stole most of the public land in, in, the, in the Enclosures Act in the 1830s or 70s, forced people into the cities. And then the, the sort of pastoral English landscape became the, the domain of the gentry. And so, so I think in, historically, we've got also those, you know, class dimensions and, and economic dimensions and differences of how people relate to land. And I know from people who've in this country who were raised poor or raised close to the land, for them, for some of them, the idea of camping is, why would I want to camp? Because that reminds me of being so poor and just having a very difficult physical existence. Why wouldn't I go to a hotel? Right? So there's, so it's like everything It's complicated. And then you bring up the issue about accessibility and more than half of the world now lives in cities. Many people don't have access to green space. Many people don't have access to safe green space. And so there's, there's an access issue. And it's true that the, the demographics in the national parks in the U.S. is mostly older, white, upper middle class. And that, that was the case. And it is changing. And the, both the park and its, its outreach is changing. I think people's, I think in the pandemic, I noticed for myself, so I live in Marin County, where you two are, a lot of open space, a lot of parks. And I noticed a seismic demographic, demographic shift in who was out in the parks during the pandemic. All of a sudden, the people in the parks were much more diverse. And it was beautiful to see that. And there was many causes and conditions for that. And there's a lot of great organizations that are trying to do good outreach with people who don't have access, working with inner city youth mm, and mm-hmm. things like organizations like Outdoor Afro and trying to in- invite and create more diversity and access for people who, who haven't historically gotten outside. Mm, so, and I mm-hmm. think those issues are really important and, and complex. Yeah. People always ask me, you know, what about when you can't, you aren't living by the forest? And I still say going outside has benefits, unless it's a very yeah. unsafe neighborhood. But for the most part, going outside, nature's everywhere. Nature is everything. So there's sky, mm-hmm. there's wind, there's rain, there's smells. We go outside, mm-hmm. we go, oh, it's spring, right? It's sunny. Oh, there's, there's, th- there's grasses growing up through the sidewalk. There's, the weeds are flowering in the parking lot. The, I can smell the blossoms even if I can't see them. You know, my neighbor's garden. So nature, we can access some, some of those benefits from being outdoors, even when we're walking around a neighborhood. Yeah, and some of the benefit here, it feels like, is related to novelty. The brain is a big novelty machine. We're highly tuned to pay attention to things that are a little bit new and different. Right. And the reality is that we just acclimate to our spaces. You know, we get used to being in our sitting on our couch or if you're the kind of person who has a regular like for instance uh, Rick has a Wednesday meditation group that meets every Wednesday and these days is on Zoom it used to be in person and when it was in person people probably got used to sitting in that specific room doing their their weekly sit and now they probably get used to sitting in front of their computer doing their little weekly sit and so just having something that breaks that pattern even if it's in not the most beautiful pastoral setting in the world. You're just walking around your block. You're looking up at the sky. Mm-hmm. You're trying to mm-hmm. 
pay attention to what's on the ground in front of you, that's probably already a, a way to sharpen attention or can be a kind of focus for mindfulness practice. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. And then there's, you know, the air quality, the more oxygen, right? There's phytoncides being released from trees. And then we connect into something bigger than ourselves. You know, I think, I think one of the serious mental health issues as we become more of an indoor species, more of a screen-oriented species, is it heightens a sense of self. And adding social media to that even more, and we go outside and we realize, oh, this whole world is not revolving around me. In my room, my office, my house, it's mostly mm. about me or whoever we're living with. We're outside, the birds don't even care about us. They might not be, want to be close to us, you know, and the trees that are just praying for rain and enjoying the storms and the clouds that are doing whatever they're doing. It's like we go and we come into this wider sphere of life that is just innately healthy that when we don't have that access, when we focus on me, myself, and I, we know that becomes basis for neurosis and all kinds of other anxiety and narcissism and, and whatnot. So even just walking out the neighborhood down to the local park, there's something connecting, enriching that's just yeah, innately humanly good. Yeah, I spent most of June a year ago in the Sierra, Nevada, California. And when I finally got home, you know, I drove home through a lot of traffic. It was a long drive. It was the antithesis of the mountains and the lakes and the rock climbs and the forests that I'd been part of. And I pulled up outside my home and just paused for a moment. And I felt quite sad. And then I just paused and I found my gaze rising to the sky. And I realized that the sky, this little skin, eight miles thick around the entire, right, 8,000-mile diameter surface of the Earth, just this extra eight miles of atmosphere that enables everything, enables all the life on the planet, obviously. And I looked up at it, and I thought, that's nature. That's mm -hmm. the wild. The wild is above my head every day, right? Anyway, just like you're saying, and uh, that sense of expansion. And I, I felt comforted. I wasn't so sad. And then I grabbed my suitcases and started hauling them inside. Right. We've got a scrappy little lot here and there's very little garden and it's mostly concrete driveway. And you know, there's a couple of trees. There's a beautiful oak tree out there. And it's remarkable, as you say, that, you know, so I'm not in this beautiful palatial stately yeah. park. It's, it's very, you know, semi-urban. But I can look at that tree and lose myself in that tree. Yeah. Right? Or mm -hmm. I can, and it, it, it's, it's sometimes just the, the, you know, even this plant here, this orchid, but the smallest reflection of nature, a plant, a tree, a shrub, yeah. mm -hmm. flowering bush, that, when we're with presence with that, it's like it, the whole of nature is there in a certain way. It's not yeah. the same as being on a mountaintop in the Sierras, but it, it's a doorway. Yeah. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's just at a different scale. It's like fractals, you know, that right. you, as you go right. down into the parts of them, the parts have parts have parts. And, you know, you make me think about these little ants and spiders in our home. And when I look at that little ant, it has about 250,000 neurons in his whole body. A honeybee has about a million neurons. I looked it up recently. It's not, I don't normally have these statistics just lying around. <laughs> this I, is I the most it. Rick. <laughs> 
tangent I can possibly imagine. I was recently <laughs> looking up the number of neurons in, inside of a honeybee. Like, yeah, I, they're smart. Really honeybees, you're you're, you're so smart. on brand here. You're becoming like a parody of yourself. Oh, my God, I love it. And they do these dances and they communicate with each other. It's fantastic. The point is, when you see that honeybee or you see that ant or that spider in the corner, they're so weird and intelligent, aren't they? <laughs> right? And you look at them, you're looking at nature right there. That little ant, that little spider, it's nature right there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's everywhere. Okay, so I have a different kind of a question here. Just about all the examples you've given are very benign. Even mm -hmm. when you said storms, at the very beginning, I think your word was lovely, lovely storms. and. When we tend to think of nature, we think of fields of flowers and pastoral settings and beautiful Sierra landscapes and so on. And yet, as you well know, much of nature is brutal. It's harsh. I think about the fact that most animals die while being attacked and devoured by predators. How do you bring that into your meditative practice? And how do you help people with, with those aspects of nature? that can be very harsh and brutal and lethal? Well, I'm very particular where I take people for one. <laughs> you don't just so, throw them into the piranha-infested yeah. river, right? <laughs> right, in the Amazon, yeah. <laughs> That's a bad business model, by the way. Yeah, it is. Like, I don't really like to do retreats in grizzly country. It also elevates both my and other people's hypervigilant and fear circuitry and whatnot. But wherever I do a retreat, nature will reveal its power, whether that's cold or heat or bugs, or, you know, I've done retreats where we've been painting or certainly rained out. I, I did a rafting trip down the Green River. I didn't know about the monsoons in July. <laughs> so we got completely soaked for 10 days. I've been sitting in hailstorms in the mountains, hiking through blizzards. And so one of the reasons why I love teaching retreats outside is because of that dynamic, because our lives are generally so placid and comfortable yeah. and familiar and predictable and safe, and at times dull. And there's something about sitting in an environment that is uncertain, that's for sure changing, that is bigger than us and has, you know, always has a certain risk to it, you know, so that requires a you know, great deal of respect. I like that. I like, you know, obviously I don't put myself or my group in harm's way, but inevitably we have to develop qualities of resilience and steadiness and letting go of preferences to pleasant environment or bug-free environments or cold or heat or whatever it is. And so I find it just good grist for the mill in terms of practice, in terms of developing quality, steadiness, and also a sense of humility. You know, we, mm. as a predator and as an apex predator and usually the top predator in environment, not always, we tend to have a lot of hubris and lack of sensitivity because we're the top predator. When you're not the top predator and, and you're hiking in grizzly country, for example, you walk with a lot more awareness and a lot more sensitivity and a lot more humility and a lot more respect. And so I like when nature engenders those qualities 
that we enter with more sensitivity and more humility and more reverence and respect for the power that the nature is also, as well as beauty and, and serenity. Anyone who's listening to a show like ours knows mental health challenges are a part of life, but they don't have to define who you are. If you're navigating something difficult, one of the best things you can do is get some high-quality help, and the Dr. John Delaney Show is a great place to go for that. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy Dr. John's show. It was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, he's been working with people for over 20 years, and the show has really a very cool format. Real people call into the show and he walks them through how to make good choices related to difficult situations and common challenges, like facing depression, overcoming anxiety, or connecting with other people. You can send them your questions by leaving a voicemail at 844-693-3291 or emailing askjohn at ramseysolutions.com. It's a great resource for people and a really nice compliment to the work we do here on Being Well. Listen to The Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell. As somebody who has a long history of painful acne and related skin issues, I know how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's where our sponsor, OneSkin, comes in. Most skincare available on the market is designed to provide a temporary reduction in symptoms without addressing many of the underlying causes. OneSkin's OS01 line of products targets cellular senescence. This is a key hallmark of aging, directly with their proprietary OS01 peptide. The OS01 peptide can reduce the number of senescent cells by up to 50%, strengthening the skin barrier, improving skin health markers, and reducing visible signs of aging. I've been using their OS01 face topical supplement, and I love how simple it is. You just cleanse, you pat your skin dry, and apply twice daily. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After you purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. Are there aspects of yourself, Mark, that you have changed your relationship with or that you've been brought into closer contact with through this practice? Dovetailing what I was just saying, talking about earlier, one thing that's been growing in me in the last few years 
is really understanding about reciprocity and relationship. So mm. in most spiritual teachings, Buddhist, indigenous, and otherwise, there's a understanding of our interconnectedness. And that's both intellectual. When we go outside, it also becomes very experiential, visceral, real. So there's a classic teaching from the Buddha about where he's speaking to this young man, Bahia, and he says, you know, he's asking about the quintessence of the practice. And he says, in the seeing, there's just the seeing, in the hearing, just the hearing, in the sensing, just the sensing, in the cognizing, just the cognizing. Like experience is this simple. And he goes on to say other things about interconnection and non-separation and other things. And I've taken that teaching. I also say in the seeing, there's also being seen. In the hearing, there's also being heard. In the sensing, there's also being sensed. Because whenever we are in outdoors in a landscape, we are being seen, we are being felt, we are being sensed, we are being smelt. Our footstep is, is having an impression on the ground and the creatures that live underground feel vibration. And so, so one of the growing edges of me is like really understanding I'm always in relationship. When I sit in a grove of redwood trees, I have a sense that they have some awareness of my presence. And we're just beginning to understand when you pluck a flower or a leaf from a shrub, the whole plant registers that experience. And, you know, and we're starting to know now know about trees communicating and sharing information. And so I'm just appreciating as I deepen my own practice, I'm becoming more sensitive, more tuned and not exactly having conversations with trees or stones, but sort of. I'm definitely entering into a relationship and that every living thing, including a stone, has its own aliveness. And sometimes the rational mind is like, what do you mean the stone? It doesn't have consciousness. There's no, we haven't tracked that. You know, in a tree, we can, we can know there's some kind of, there's just definitely intelligence. And so, I, I, so I'm, I'm noticing a greater sensitivity, a greater awareness, greater understanding of relationship and being able to listen to the natural world and, and feel less and less other. When I'm walking through the forest, I'm aware that I'm part of the forest walking through itself. I'm part of the forest in that moment aware of itself. One thing that landed on me when I was doing my own nature work in June reading Braiding Sweetgrass in part at the mm. time and suddenly shifting from appreciating nature, quote-unquote, visiting nature, quote-unquote, going on a nature journey, quote-unquote, shifting from that to being nature, being nature myself. Nothing left out, no separation, non-dual, just like you're saying. Just imagine how humanity might treat our one precious only planet if we experienced being nature in that kind of way. You have a completely right. different regard for the little beings you might casually be stepping on <laughs> on the trail, right? Or what you're doing all together by, you know, excreting 100 million tons a day of CO2 into the sky through human activity. Yeah, and, and the more time we immerse outside, the more that experience, as you, as you experience on your month sojourn, becomes more sort of real and, and, and tangible and normal. And, and then the more we retreat to our homes, that the nature becomes this, this other thing. 
that I go to for a walk or that I go to to enjoy, but it's not, it, it, we lose that sense of, oh, we, we are, we are nature. How could we be anything but? Just to play with that a little bit, I've thought a lot about the language around refuge. The languaging very often is I go to refuge in or I find refuge. It's dualistic. It's outside ourselves. And I've really in, enjoyed exploring the practices of I come from the refuge of the teacher. I come from the refuge of the teachings. You know, I come from the refuge. In other words, I'm already present in refuge, just like we're talking here about nature as a refuge, applying that you know, exploration I had around refuge to nature as refuge. Being nature, I'm already at home. Which for me has just been really beautiful. The refuge is living through us. To dovetail with what you're saying here, Dad, one of the things that stood out to me, Mark, when I was looking through a couple of your books, Awake in the Wild and the most recent one, and just kind of getting to know your, you a little bit better through your work, mm-hmm. was this question of like, are we searching for a place or are we searching for a feeling? Because there's this idea in something like nature meditation where you're looking for a place, you know, you're looking for a setting within which to practice. But at least for me, I think about the feeling that gets evoked by being in a natural setting. You've talked about things like feeling more connected to all beings or feeling a sense of awe with, I think Dacher Keltner actually has a relatively new book out titled Awe or Similar, and we've talked to him on the podcast, and he's a wonderful guy who's explored some of these similar ideas. And those feelings in some ways feel like a huge part of the target here where there's this sensation associated with them. And if you can get to aspects of that sensation by looking at the orchid in the same way that you can by going to the Grand Canyon, sure, it's not the same thing, but it's a pretty good proxy. Mm-hmm. And I just think about in, in my own life how an increasing target for me has been what I'm doing when I'm not engaged in deliberate practice, like what's running in the background of my mind when I'm just doing the dishes or walking around the house or whatever else. And it's these feelings that I keep coming back to, these sensations of oneness or connection or being a a small piece of a larger whole or feeling the import of my actions cascading out into other beings or however Mm. you want to talk about it. So I just just wonder your, your take on all of that, the the feeling, including some of the things that Rick was speaking to there, distinct from the setting and and how those two play with each other. Yeah. Well, I love I love both of what you've been saying in different pointing to different dimensions of that. Yeah. So what comes to me out of all that? So first thing is is this sense of like John John Muir's phrase, by going out, I realized I was going within. By going outside, I realized I was going within. And for me, and I think for many people, when I walk up the hill by my house and I go through some eucalyptus groves and out into the headlands and or wherever it is, and I, and I just take a moment to be quiet, or I'm I'm dropping into the, the the kind of quieter presence that you were talking about, you know, in an ordinary activity, there is the sense of oh, I'm coming home, I'm coming home. I'm I'm more Mm. at home Mm -hmm. here, even though, you know, the conditions might be cold or windy or harsh or whatever, but there's a sense of there's something happening in the nervous system above and beyond my conscious mind, my preferences, my desires, where just the body and and the nervous system is like, oh, this, this feels okay. This feels safe. This feels right. There's some kind of goodness to it. And 
What I do notice is that the quality of presence by which I go outside and enter into a, a landscape really matters. Like if I'm like, oh, I'm going to get to the top of that peak and I'm going to, you know, beat my best time and I'm not coming home. I'm not feeling refuge. So how we are, what, what quality of presence we bring really matters. And of course, you know, but sometimes we go out and we're stressed. We need, you know, we're like, need to get out of my house. I need a break. I need space. I need, and often then what I find is nature does the work for us. It invites us to mellow out and invites us to calm down. It invites us to get present. It invites us to breathe. It invites us to be in our bodies. It invites us to look around, to get out of our own story and into what's happening, which is, oh, springtime or storm or whatever. You know, I feel very blessed, as I'm sure both of you do, that because I have had the good fortune of having a lot of meditation training, Buddhist training, mind training, that there's certain things that that just conditions. For example, I don't go outside trying to get an experience. I go outside and just go outside and see what happens. And then whatever feeling quality arises happens. And one of the things I love about being outside is I love to be surprised and I'm always surprised because I never know what I'm going to expect. And I just love being so almost slapped into the present. So kind of going back to what you were saying a little earlier, Forrest, about how the brain loves novelty. I think why nature wakes us up because there's just, it's unboundedly fresh, unboundedly changing. Even if you walk in the same place in the botanical gardens in your city, that is never the same garden. You know, just like they say, the river yeah. is never the same twice. So there's something about just feeling the, the aliveness and the dynamism, which I think we, we hunger. And so we look to our phones for a little dopamine, hit a little stimulation, but actually the stimulation from the hawk circling or whatever it might be, the pigeons, pigeons here, they murmurate. And it's just, it's just so, such a delight to be mm -hmm. brought into the present in that way. I would love to move us into practice a little bit here, because I'm guessing that probably over half of the people who listen to this podcast have probably never done a really focused meditation or a really focused practice of meditation for any kind of extended period of time. That's my guess. And we've talked a lot about practicing in nature, and so I'm curious what that looks like to you practically. And also, let's say that somebody is coming to this without a really strong practice background, but they would like to begin to cultivate some of these qualities as they move through the world including, of course, when they're moving in natural environments, but as they move through the world broadly. Are there things that you start to draw people's attention to, things that you cue them to start maybe putting a little extra emphasis on, like what their feet are doing, the way that they're breathing as they move through space, what they're looking at, what the gaze tends to rest on? Specifically, I'm focusing on moving here because people are moving a lot throughout their day. And mm -hmm. people can't always take time to sit, but they can often do a little something else as they're moving. At least that's what I found in my life. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that question. And I, what I love about nature practice is it really actually bridges the world of what we consider formal meditation practice, you know, sitting still, eyes closed, and life. So when you're walking through the park or walking through a neighborhood, 
or walking in any natural setting, what I like to emphasize on my retreats is that what starts to happen is a natural contemplative meditative awareness or natural natural awareness. Mindfulness starts to grow. So the simplest instructions are, I'm going to give two simple instructions. One is when you're walking, like say you're walking through the park on your way to work, perhaps, or you're walking down a street that has, has a lot of trees. It feels like an, an avenue, like, like almost like a little forest. So that the instruction is very simple. You slow down a little bit. You don't have to walk slowly, but slow down a little bit and begin to be curious about your sensory experience. And you can walk through your different senses. Like let your eyes really look around, take in the colors, the light, movement, shapes, and just, and just be curious what, what allures your attention. I love this word, allure. Nature allures our attention into the present. So what's alluring your attention with the way the light, and I'm seeing the light hitting this tree and the shadows of its limbs or the contour of the, of the wing of a bird, and then shift to hearing. You know, what, what's the soundscape? What are the distant sounds, Is the silence, the sounds of wind, of rain, of you know, just the whole symphony of sounds. Be aware of smells as you breathe. Give a little attention every now and then when you walk past a tree or a stream or, or blossoms or mud. Like what, what's, what's naturally calling you into the present? And, and so it doesn't feel like this is a formal meditation, but you are being mindful in the present, in, your, in this case, in your sensory experience. And then also bring awareness to your body. How does your body feel as the breeze blows cool air on your skin or you feel the warmth on the back of your neck or you feel the, the softness of the grass or the squelchiness of the mud. So just keep reorienting attention to whatever sense experience is most predominant. And then if you, if you choose to pause either standing or you find a bench or somewhere or a stone or a log you want to sit on, then I'd like to share this practice, of what, a similar practice of arriving. And arriving is just, which we do naturally anyway. Maybe you go to a park, you sit on a bench, and maybe you're not jumping into activity or on your phone, and you just take a few moments, few minutes to arrive. And what arriving means is just orienting your attention, again, to your sensory experience, looking around, looking above you, looking at the space, the canopy, the colors, the light. And there is, you sit on the earth, sensing your body, connecting with the earth, Noticing the particular soundscape. Everywhere we go has a particular soundscape. Every environment, every pocket has a particular energy or quality. Some places feel still. Some people places feel very thick or alive or wild or spacious. You could ask the question, what am I present to now? What am I aware of now? What are the senses naturally knowing? And then the only little effort that's required. And a lot of nature practice is quite effortless. And the only effort we need really is notice when that sense experience of like gazing at the trunk of a tree or listening to the sound of a woodpecker or smelling some blossom or whatever, notice when that goes, shifts from just that simple bare experience to then thinking, I wonder what that bird is. I wonder if it's blossoms. I wonder if those blossoms are on my neighbor's tree. I love my neighbor's tree. They're a really good garden. I should go and have lessons with them. You know, maybe I need to go down to the garden shop, you know, and then we're gone. 
you notice that and you go, okay, what's happening? Oh, I'm, I'm now hearing a different bird song. Now I'm smelling a different smell. So those are just simple ways to begin to orient mindfully in nature without making it, without making a production, including the production of trying to meditate and all the baggage that that can come with. So let's suppose that someone has done these nature-centered practices, if only looking out through a window and letting their mind be as open as the sky, let's say. Then they return. And as Jack Cornfield put it memorably on his title of his book, after the ecstasy, the laundry. They have the laundry. They have the teenagers. They have their partner. They have the ache in their back. They have the fact that there's no milk in the refrigerator, something. How can people bring into their daily life some of the key benefits of the kind of nature practices that you teach and write about? Yeah, well, I think one thing that's, that's really interesting and fun to reflect on is because we so separate nature from, from ourselves, nature from stuff, when you're at home, you know, when you, when you open the fridge door, you're looking into a farm, right? You're looking into a, into a fishery or whatever you have in your fridge, right? It's, but mostly it's a farm, right? It's, you're looking at food that's come from the earth. It might be very mangled and very what's manufactured and processed and what, but it, you know, it's like, and when you're, you know, most of our houses, they're forests, right? They're wood, right? They're, they're timber, they're frames of wooden floors I'm looking at, the, the table that I'm sitting at. So I find actually remembering like, oh, this too is nature. And as I'm making my toast and drinking my tea that's probably been grown on a plantation in, in Assam in Northern India. So just that, just like, oh, how can I stay connected to nature? Of course, like where forest is, it's got these beautiful plants. I like to have plants too, where we bring nature in. And then also the, something you both pointed to, and I think I have too, I did a solo retreat for myself recently. And the most joyful part of the retreat wasn't the meditation like I did. I, I had this little rooftop I would sit on and I'd just gaze at the trees and the sky mostly. And, but it was just ordinary activity. And so when I was on retreat, I noticed, oh, just making my breakfast was really pleasurable because I wasn't stress by time or the perception of time scarcity. And so if we can bring that quality of relaxed presence that we so often feel when we're outside and engender some of that when we're going about ordinary activity, which is you know, relaxing the body, pausing, slowing down, I think that can also be very helpful. And then also looking out the window. You know, I, I place my laptop by my window and I probably gaze out the window the crow that's now the family that's now building nest. Uh, he's on the telegraph post right now. I probably look out my window, I don't know, 500 times a day. And I'm just referencing, you know, just from a moment of the tree or the light, the cloud, the sun, the whatever, just that, like, and that helps bring a sense of context or space or for me, relaxation. Probably my heart rate goes down a few beats, a few notches. So there's ways that we can bring the outdoors in. I think that's that can be very helpful. One thing, uh, maybe as we finish here, I've, I've been reflecting on, so maybe 40 years ago, nearly, I was working for somebody and we were here in Marin County and we were at a, like a 
wine and cheese party for some reason. And I was his assistant. And I recall him looking out over all the well-dressed, semi-posh San Francisco Bay Area people. And he just kind of smiled and shook his head and said, a bunch of tame monkeys. <laughs> and what he meant by that, I think, because I talked to them afterward, was the ways in which in civilization, so-called, we can really constrict and sanitize ourselves. Mm. And we can, in a sense, we can expel the wild, the mm. unpredictable, the raw, the savage sometimes, the overpowering sometimes. We try to push it out of our lives. And as Forrest knows, one of the things I've become interested in a lot recently, speaking of return, is allowing a return of the wild inside ourselves. The wild nature inside ourselves. And I'm just imagining that one thing that can happen when people do nature practices outside themselves, with nature outside themselves, over time, they can bring some of the qualities of the wild into themselves, or more exactly, reclaim them inside themselves, make room for them again inside themselves. And one of the key aspects of that is that nature as nature is not regulated externally. And yet we spend a lot of time trying to regulate our own minds, keep certain things out of sight, push certain things down, slam on the brakes, squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. And there's something that happens, I think, when you start to relax about your own inner ecosystem and allow it to be self-regulating rather than top-down regulating by the executive systems in your own mind and brain. Give it more room to breathe and allow it to have its own inner harmony like in nature, there is harmony. The prey are in harmony with the predators. Their populations are regulated by each other. It is a kind of harmony, even if it's sometimes bloody. And how can we find that harmony inside ourselves and learn from the harmony outside of ourselves? Is that a question? Or is that rhetorical? Well, it's a statement and a question, but it's something that's that's been important for me to make more room for the wild inside. Don't be such mm. a tame, be untamed. Nature is untamed. How can we live in an untamed way that's not brutal or harsh toward others? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly having contact with those wild elements will, you know, we can feel that, you know, something I think that's why so many of us are drawn to the wilderness because there's a certain kind of untameness. Like one of the things I love about being in the wild is there's no mirrors, there's no phones, there's no external referencing except, you know, rock faces and old trees and bears and yeah. ponds and, and there's something fresh about letting go of that sort of mm -hmm. illusion of civilization yeah. and, and just being yourself, which actually, and this is a beautiful thing that happens when we're in nature, we self-forget. You know, there's a beautiful line from this Ute prayer by Linda Brown. She says, earth teach me to forget myself as melted snow forgets its life. And when we go outside, we forget ourselves, especially if we go outside for some days or weeks. And we're just part of nature and we're not worrying about how to be, as you say, top-down regulation. We're just, we're just being nature in nature and however it is, it's okay. Scruffy, unshaven, <laughs> smelly <laughs> or not. <laughs> yeah, there's a freedom in that. Well, Mark, thank you so much for doing this with us today. I think that's a wonderful note to end our conversation on. I, I really enjoyed this, and it was great to talk with you a bit more. Great. Delightful to talk to both of you. It was a really pleasurable conversation. I feel like we, can, we could talk for hours. There's such a lot here. Yeah, yeah, totally. 
We had a great time today talking with Mark Coleman, who is a senior meditation teacher at Spirit Rock in Northern California. He's the founder of the Awake in the Wild organization and author of the book by the same name. And his most recent book is titled A Field Guide to Nature Meditation, 52 Mindfulness Practices for Joy, Wisdom, and Wonder. We began today's conversation by asking Mark about his personal background and how he found himself drawn toward nature. And one of the things that he mentioned a number of times throughout the conversation was the feeling that he was able to access while in natural environments that he wasn't necessarily able to access when he was just sitting on his couch or practicing in a conventional meditation hall or similar. And one of the things that he talked about was this feeling of connectedness that I think that we can all get when we're out in wilderness environments, this feeling of being really very small but in a pleasant way, if that makes any sense, feeling like we're just one small piece of a puzzle that is far vaster than we could ever really wrap our heads around. And part of the reason that nature practice or meditating out in nature, practicing out in nature, using nature as a way to focus your attention can be so helpful for people is because it really plays on aspects of the brain itself. The brain is in many ways just a novelty detection machine. It is constantly on the lookout for what is new and different. And we tend to acclimate to our environments. We acclimate to the couch we're sitting on, to the computer screen we're looking at, to whatever it is that's inside our environment day after day after day. But just as Mark said, natural environments are inherently changing all the time. Every time that you look at a river, it's a little bit different. It's maybe not a lot a bit different, but there's different water in that river at that moment. And that does tend to focus our attention. It pulls us away from the default mode network of the brain toward maybe more the task positive network. And we talked about both of those networks recently on a conversation that we had with Dr. John Rady focused on ADHD. But just in general, there's this movement in modern culture toward more sitting, more looking at screens, more engaging with technology. And I'm not here to like evangelize about not doing those things. I do plenty of sitting and staring at screens and all of that. But I do think that just like anything, you can have an absolute excess of that. And these machines are all designed really to pull us into the ruminatory networks of the brain, the more default mode. And I think that one of the real benefits of any kind of nature practice is its unique ability to pull us away from that and into a more focused engagement with our surroundings. And some of this focusing occurs because natural environments are not just calm and pastoral meadows, right? They can be intense or chaotic or uncomfortable. And all of those things, if they're you know sufficiently safe, if we take them in small enough doses, are really very good for us. They help us build resilience. They help us get in touch with different aspects of ourselves. They maybe expand our notion of what could be possible for us. And it operates on both sides of the coin. If you're somebody like me, a white upper middle class guy who tends to have a fair amount of authority in environments or feel pretty safe most of the time, then going into a natural space where you are not the biggest animal around or you are in a circumstance that is unfamiliar or uncomfortable to you, that can actually be really helpful because it can put you in touch with a sensation that you're unfamiliar with. It can maybe give you a bit more empathy for people who feel that way all the time, just moving through their daily life. Then the flip side of that, let's suppose that you're somebody who 
doesn't necessarily feel very aggressive or very in control or very vital or like they can really influence the environments that they're in much, where they just don't feel that powerful maybe. Well, one of the things that really helped me when I felt that way in my life was being able to go into some natural environments and feel a sense of mastery over time, feeling like I could chop the wood or climb the rock or run up the trail. And just getting in touch with my body in that sort of a vital way was really helpful for me and and became a really powerful resource for me. When I was a little bit younger, you know, 12, 13 years old, I wasn't feeling uh, feeling particularly masculine or particularly strong or particularly in control of the way that my life was turning out. And so nature can be a resource for different people coming from different circumstances. And even if you're somebody who's low access, one of the things that we talked about during the conversation was how a feeling can be just as valuable as a place. Maybe it's the feeling that you get just looking out your window or just looking at your little houseplant or walking around your city block and raising your eyes toward the sky rather than looking down at the pavement. What's the value that you can get out of that? How can that itself become a kind of practice that operates in the background just as you move through the world? So you don't have to take those 20 to 30 minutes, if it's not very accessible to you, to sit on the cushion in a deliberate way and go, wow, this is really my meditation practice now. You can do it just when you're walking around, just when you're living life. And over time, that can increasingly become a home base that you operate from that makes everything just a little bit better for you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you've been listening for a little while and you haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe. If you're listening on Spotify, I think you can click follow or something like that. If you're watching on YouTube, you can click the subscribe button. Whatever platform you're on, please subscribe. It really helps the podcast out. And also the best way that we have to reach new people is probably just when you tell a friend about it. So if you could give it a share, we'd really appreciate that too. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for every episode of the show, I create these detailed show notes that go into the ideas, the research, really everything that we talk about. You can also access ad-free versions of the show, transcripts. Uh, There are a whole bunch of resources there, and it's just a few dollars a month. Until next time, once again, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.